Hey everyone! First off, we're the familiar strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. I would like also to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands that I live and work on, the Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation. And I would like to acknowledge the first inhabitants of this land, the Ghana people, and pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging. All right, let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences. Produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your familiar stranger today, Dee, together with familiar stranger Alex. Hello. Sophie Chow, postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Sydney, whose research explores capitalism, indigeneity, and ecology. Hi there. And brand new guest, Mike Dunford, who is a PhD candidate at the ANU, studying tea producers and traders in Myanmar. Hello. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook. All right, let's kick it off. Alex, what are you thinking about this week? Yeah, so I'm in the middle of applying for a job that I'm not going to get, but it's an academic job and the application is pretty epic. Part of it is that I have to write this two-page cover letter and as part of that, I have to talk about my future as a researcher and planning my career five years from now. And Honestly, I have about two and a half chapters of my thesis written. So obviously whatever I come up with, everyone knows isn't going to be accurate. And yet it's an important part of the document. So my question to you guys as people before this space, in the middle of this space, or have sort of started to move through this space, what do you see as the purpose of this fantastical career plan? Well, as someone who is in the very early stages of their master's project, I haven't even begun to think about what's going to happen afterwards yet. I personally am not very good at thinking ahead anyway, let alone thinking about what my career is going to be after I do finish this master's. I think it's a great question. It was the one question that I tripped up when I was in my job interview for this postdoc at the University of Sydney. Like Dee, I'm not really strong on five-year, ten-year plans. I kind of like to let things grow organically in a situational kind of way. I think it's one of the strengths of anthropologists. But I guess I think maybe there's two ways to think about it. The first is really strategic and pragmatic. Often, you know, people who are advertising for jobs are looking for a kind of narrative arc and a connective flow between what you've done, what you do, and what you want to do. And then the other way is the more philosophical or personal way of thinking about it through the themes that really you have a passion for, and you might be pursuing them through different kind of career options, um, but it's the ideas or the, you know, the visions that you have for the world that you want to inhabit and shape that I guess is the more philosophical side of that question. But it's a really difficult one, especially in the COVID scape. For sure. I mean, that's part of what got me thinking about just how artificial this document is. I mean, who am I supposed to be performing in that moment? It also reminds me of, say, at the ANU, we call it the TPR. Other universities will call it their confirmation, where you're sort of like, I will go to the field and I will do this, that and the other. And everyone in that room knows that your fieldwork will look nothing like it. And yet you have to perform this kind of faux expertise. 
As a PhD student now, I'm trying to perform this narrative that I set out with a clear question and am gathering the data that I need to answer it, and then I will answer it. But in reality, I'm accumulating side projects by the day, and you know, the like erratic writing folder is bit, way bigger than the actual kind of hard data folder. So in one sense, you know, it's an opportunity to say, here's my next project. You can try out some of those side things that you think are really cool, but you haven't had the chance to explore yet. But then there's also something kind of perverted about it. Like they're asking you to share your fantasy about the future in, in a way. And it's very intimate. You, you want me to tell you a story about the future? Like, I'm not asking you to marry me. I just need a job. <laughs> but is it your fantasy? I mean, if you asked me for a very honest answer, I'd probably say something like, I'd be running a microbrew with a little liqueur-making still on the side. Like, but I'm not going to put that in the letter. <laughs> oh, my God. I totally relate. For me, it's a bakery on Bali. <laughs> but it's so interesting that your initial fantasy for the future doesn't sound like it has anything to do with these jobs that you're applying for i shouldn't like push that too hard like i do enjoy academia and i want to be a part of it and i've wanted to be a part of it for a long time but again it's this performance i think it must have some sort of social function i mean we all know the cliche as you said d and sophie like that job interview question of where do you see yourself in five years time and we all know it's this fake performance yeah i mean i try to imagine myself 10 years ago it's almost laughable how little i understood about the world. But I think Dee was right to point out that both Sophie and Alex have these things that are unrelated to anthropology, but they're also both really like physical, like kneading things and like stirring the beer. And I wonder if you've been just like with your brain in a laptop for too many years and want to like exercise a different part of, of your, your work. <laughs> for me, it's as much the kinesthetic practice that so much of academia doesn't allow you and it's also I think the kind of immediate satisfaction of baking a cake and seeing someone enjoy it in the immediate future um, because sometimes the timelines of academic production and return can be so extended um, whereas there's something nice about a, a success story in the here and now simply by the act of feeding someone and I think that's what really you know attracts me to the bakery idea. It's moments like these when I really wish that we were recording in person and that maybe you'd felt like baking something before this podcast recording. Maybe on that note, we should perhaps move on to Sophie. What are you thinking about? So this week, I've been thinking a lot about interdisciplinarity. I hosted a two-day workshop at the Sydney Environment Institute last week, and it was really fascinating to see how many people believe that interdisciplinary research is really the way forward in addressing some of the most critical social and environmental problems of this age. But it's raised some interesting questions for me as well. What does it mean to collaborate with scholars in the hard sciences? How do we come up with research questions in common? How does research then translate into academic writing? What kind of challenges and opportunities can we meet across along the way? And particularly, what does it mean to be interdisciplinary for early career researchers like myself who don't yet have a firm grounding in our own fields? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been told for decades now that the future is supposed to be interdisciplinary. But in practice, how to do that is just kind of difficult. I mean, to some extent, I think this is on anthropologists because we've been off doing our own thing for so long. We haven't tried, I don't think, to talk to other disciplines heaps, but they don't talk to us heaps either. I mean, this is the thing. And so we start talking about really different languages, but how to do that? I mean, 
how do you talk ethnography to somebody who does quantitative data? No idea. I thought this was a really interesting question because like the answers could go in in a number of different ways, kind of depending on what you think interdisciplinarity means. Like it could mean something methodological. So looking away from ethnography into quantitative methods or at methods from geography, other methodologies that we don't normally use, but it could also mean kind of drawing on other traditions of writing and lines of questioning. At least in my own project, right now I'm talking to two botanists, one kind of hardcore plant geneticist and one guy who's more of an ethnobotanist. I don't know what we do without him because he needs to constantly translate between me and the plant phylogeneticist. But the things that they think are relevant are really mind-blowing to me, and I've, I've learned a lot from them. One of them asked me, a tea plant doesn't produce usable leaves for three or four years. So what does that mean for farmers? Does it affect their mobility? And I'm like, I don't know. But now I I know to ask that question. And I don't think I would have got there only reading anthropology about farmers. I needed to talk to someone who's kind of a plant-centric person. But there's that collaboration that goes on, right? Even though you are coming from your own expertise or backgrounds of expertise, you're able to come together to form something bigger. I I hope so. We'll see where it goes. I think it's so wonderful that you're crossing that great divide between the social and the physical sciences, Michael, because it's one thing working with geographers and historians. It's quite another working with plant scientists and nutritional epidemiologists, in my case. Um, So good on you. And I think you're right. Like, it makes us rethink the kind of questions we ask, the ones that matter. And I think it's a really healthy exercise because we can end up often taking for granted the way we understand what we do and the questions that matter and the conceptual work we do. So it's a refreshing and often challenging but healthy exercise to actually have to take a step back and actually go, no, this is not necessarily the way all disciplines work. So we shouldn't take that knowledge for granted. There's also, it makes you question why you're doing what you're doing. Again, what are the purposes of your research? In Ecuador, it's a shame Simon's not here because I have a dig. I'm not going to talk about bureaucrats for a change. But I did in Ecuador. I interact with some other academics at the Universidad Andina de Simón Bolívar, which is a university. But a lot of people I interact with there are all about small business. We're both looking at the popular solidarity economy, so this particular type of economy, but coming at it from not just different methodological angles, but questions of purpose. For me, it's just sort of like understanding the social phenomenon. For a lot of them, it's like, okay, how do we grow? How do we get people to have their businesses work more? It does make collaborative work hard. I'd really love to publish something alongside them, but as of yet, not being able to really come up with a topic that we can both speak to really well. I don't always have enough of a practical purpose for them, but their interests don't necessarily align with what would go in an anthropology journal. And I still want to do it, but again, it's a really difficult dilemma. I suppose even the form that you want that information to come across in as well can change because... You don't necessarily need to be limited to publishing in a journal, depending on what the other factors are, you know, where you want it to be, what kind of form you want it to take, all of those things play in as well. Maybe this could be the beginning of more interdisciplinary journals popping up as well. I don't know, from from my perspective, it seems like people are becoming more interested in that interdisciplinary approach 
to things. Examples that I can think of immediately, like the 3AI Institute at ANU, this place where people from different backgrounds do come together and do engage in that kind of knowledge production and teaching early career researchers to work together with their own backgrounds of knowledge to produce new knowledge or more knowledge. We actually interviewed Genevieve Bell on a previous podcast that was released at the start of last year. And so she talks a bit more about her work in Silicon Valley that also looks at anthropology in a completely different space, another form of interdisciplinary knowledge production. This is a big question that we have to answer now. Well, not have to answer now, but start thinking about answers to now is kind of like... What is fieldwork going to look like in COVID times and how can leaning on disciplines that don't rely so much on hanging out in person in a place that's not necessarily your home, how can we look past that kind of traditional model of ethnography? Mike, that sounds like a, a really good point to actually transition over to your topic for this week. Could you tell us a bit more about that? This week I did a couple of interviews over Zoom and Facebook Messenger, and they felt really weird and extractive, and I felt like I was forcing these people to talk to me. These were interviews related to my research topic. It felt forced and extractive in a way that it doesn't when I'm in person. But, you know, my time in the field is supposed to be now, and I'm back in Australia due to the coronavirus and will be for the indefinite future. So Zoom interviews are how it's going to go until further notice. And I wonder if any of you had felt this Zooming someone, if it felt kind of forced or extractive or invasive, and if you had any ideas about but how to mitigate that. I can definitely tick forced, invasive. It's funny, I've not felt it so much, but I know some people are very self-conscious and there's got to be some part of this because this is a podcast, so no one can see what's behind me. But I don't normally care much what's behind me. But I know some people are very conscious about having opened their house to maybe strangers, possibly acquaintances, etc., etc. And so I can imagine that a lot of people would feel that, which is insane considering when we're doing fieldwork. Like, we often literally enter people's homes. Like, you get to see more of their home, its smells, its sounds, than just this little box on Zoom allows for. And yet, I know for some people, it's a very piercing gaze. So I haven't really had much experience in terms of doing interviews over Zoom since the COVID pandemic started, but I have friends who have, and they've picked up on similar kinds of challenges to what you've described. Uh, and there's two that stand out. One is the uh, sort of problem of uh, constantly interrupting each other when you're on a collective Zoom call. And they're working in Southeast Asian countries, and they have said that it's, they find it really hard to maintain you know, the kind of ethos you need when you can't tell who's going to speak and you don't have the kind of physical cues to let you know and that's been a major hindrance the second obstacle that they've told me they've come across in the process of doing online interviews is the issue of time differences often they're calling people and it's evening time for them but it's really early morning for their interlocutors and that actually really changes the dynamic of what people want to talk about how they're going to talk about it because of the kind of spatio-temporal frame so one way they got around that is alternating my morning your evening your evening my morning because the dynamics actually quite different as are the topics that they get to talk about i wonder what are the norms around face-to-face -face telecommunication i don't know something about in, in the video, you're always performing. If I'm with anyone that isn't like a really close friend, I am much more conscious about what I'm doing with my 
body, my posture, my face. If you were in the field physically, you would still be performing in a sense because you wouldn't just rock up to your field site in your pajamas and just like slouch around. I I mean, okay, for context, (laughs) depending on what your field work is, you might. But if you were someone who was in Ecuador talking to bureaucrats, I'm sure, Alex, you wouldn't be slouching around trying to conduct interviews. Dee, you pointed out something huge. Maybe one of the things that I found so strange and confusing about this is one of the guys who I talked to is a friend who I will show up where he is. He'll like drop by my apartment and just call me and say like, hey, I'm outside. What are you doing? I've had that kind of relationship with him kind of since the moment I met him. But when we talked on Zoom, we had to like set a meeting time. And, like, we missed each other's calls, and then it it became, like, formal. Like, he was in his office, and I was sitting here. I wonder if having to perform in a way that, like, this is a guy, I do not feel the need to perform in front of him. He is, like, a peer, like a friend. But then, since we're talking about my research project, which is kind of tied into his business interests, he's a tea broker, like, it becomes work in a way that it's usually not. And I wonder if maybe that has something to do with... Usually we're just hanging around with one another and we talk about tea because it's what we're both interested in and it's not really like an interview. I don't know. Yeah, I totally relate to what you've just said, Michael. There's something about Zoom which automatically makes the conversation turn to work. Yeah, that actually really links to what I was going to ask. It's, it's that inability to do or difficulty in doing something that isn't an interview. <laughs> like, just... hang out whether it's like you're helping somebody make umitas or you're just walking to the grocery store and you're having a chat while you're on your way to the supermarket like there are all these little interactions that are really useful as anthropologists but are kind of cut out all right i think we should probably move on to my topic so since we released the blog blurred lines and dead tricks in fieldwork this whole idea of reciprocity and gift giving has really been on my mind a lot it just made me think of all those instances throughout life where there are these interactions and exchanges and just from your own experience because you've all engaged in fieldwork and more things like that i just was really curious what your experiences have been it's a killer of a question because i know where i was in ecuador what a lot of people would have liked from me is for me to bring, like, Australian aid funding. And this is after AusAid was basically closed up and rolled into the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So it was something that not only was I not connected to bring, it didn't even exist for me to bring, in essence. And that was really difficult. I mean, you know, I never promised anything, and that is the biggest rule. I think we've said this on the show a few times, but, like, never promise what you can't do. And as I just mentioned before... Even collaborating with some of my academic contacts has proven difficult thus far. I'm still keen to, but it's, again, been more difficult than I had sort of thought at first. But what little things that have cropped up have been things like I helped a bunch of women in a little town learn how to make liqueur. And both the little the people at the local government who sort of organised the session and the women, we had a ball. I mean, it was actually quite funny. It was supposed to be three sessions, because the way I do it is each session's 40 days apart. It got to the last session and basically no one turned up. And I was like, oh, but I thought, you know, I thought we were having fun. I thought this was good. And the one person turned up and said, yeah, but they drank it already. (laughs) Like, (laughs) no one could wait the last 40 days. Your fantasy job suddenly seems uh, more legit now. Uh, Look, 
it crops up here and there. But that, honestly, of like in a real direct like appreciation, that funny little silly let's make some liqueur course was one of the things that was probably the most directly appreciated by the people there, which I would never have guessed. And like they were happy for me to do research around them, but we often think of that reciprocity in terms of our research, and it really doesn't have to be, I think. I think you can actually do some quite different activities that people will enjoy and appreciate. It's a really important question. It touches to the real heart of, you know, the ethics of doing anthropological research and what you give back for what you take. Um, and as you were saying, Alex, there's all kinds of ways of doing that. And they often very rarely take the form of academic outputs or, you know, scholarly articles. So I think one of the ways that I've tried to do it in my research with indigenous communities in Indonesian West Papua has been to develop manuals and practical guidance and tools, information toolkits for the communities about things things like international human rights frameworks or national legal frameworks that we used in workshops about human rights, about land rights, participatory mapping, and that could then be used by the communities and they were published in the local language to sort of raise awareness of what their rights are under the law and then what claims they can make to the government and to all palm corporations when their land rights are being violated or jeopardized by large-scale corporate or industrial activities. So that's been one kind of ways that I've tried to give back in these in the form of sort of more practical tools that can then be used in advocacy contexts. It's a huge question and something that's really humbling about doing anthropology is people will be so much kinder to you than you can ever possibly reciprocate but you know you just have to be grateful and give back as much as you can. The kind of most evocative thing that I've seen in terms of reciprocity happened at the university that was hosting me in Myanmar and it had nothing to do with me. Some of the professors there will cook these elaborate lunches for everyone including the foreign researchers there which there were three of us there were about 15 or 20 Burmese anthropologists and and three foreigners. And one guy who'd been there for about a year, he one day he told them, "Tomorrow I'm going to roast a chicken and bring it in." And they were all kind of like, "Fat chance, like we'll believe it when we see it." And he did it and that was maybe five months ago, and they're still talking about it. Whenever I talk to one of the faculty from Mandalay University, they're like, you know, Brian, he has a good heart. He fed us, too. We weren't just feeding him, and I was kind of like, ah, noted. I, 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 will, I will cook for you if I ever come back. I don't want to promise that. It would be rude to say that I plan to, but I will. <laughs> just seeing how much they they appreciated it, which is sort of... On one level, an obvious lesson, like treat other people the way that they've been treating you. I just think it's so interesting that some of these ideas for maintaining relationships and enacting that kind of reciprocity have changed and adapted because we are in this situation where we have to change and adapt. As you guys have said, you can't just go and partake in those everyday activities that you usually would that would help to foster that relationship instead. You have to think outside of the box or through the Zoom box, if you like, you know, changing it up. I do think, unfortunately, we will have to wrap it up there. Otherwise, this is going to be an epic podcast. Um, So that's all we have time for today. I would like to thank, once again, Alex, Sophie, and Mike for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Dee. Thank you. I'm your host, Dee. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Full. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. 
And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the familiar strange, not the strange familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>